0: As we said before, we're finishing up our time in 1 Thessalonians. And if you've been with us as we've been going through this letter, you'll know that what we've got here is a letter to a church of new believers in the early days of them choosing to follow Jesus. And we see in this letter, and we see it in here and in chapter 4, Paul calls the church God's family, he calls them brothers and sisters. And, and in our day and age, uh, calling someone family is a term that we use pretty loosely. Um, it, it's, we have our work family. We call our, our friends aunties and uncles. It's become a bit of a, a term of endearment. But this, ha- this wasn't how it was in the first century. Family was your safety net. They helped you survive. You had a responsibility to each other. And so this is how it is still across the world. It's just our Western culture that's changed it a bit. And so the Bible says that we're family, not because it's a friendly way to introduce each, talk to each other and address each other, but that we're, because, we're family because we've been adopted by God. We've become a, a spiritual family. Together, we're all co-heirs in Christ. And that's true of anyone that's, a follower of Jesus. And so, our call, the call for the church is to live like family. So, I don't know about you, but family can be tricky to live with sometimes. And the reason being, we don't get to choose our family. It's the same with the church. The church is filled with all types of people, uh, different ages, interests, abilities, personalities, needs. But God calls us to unite. Around Jesus, And so like any family, there can be tensions that can arise from living as a family. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed that different families uh, deal with tension in different ways. Uh, some like to just avoid it, just sweep it under the rug. Uh, some like to be highly confrontational and just put it all on the table. Uh, I grew up one of three boys, and the way we dealt with conflict is we'd just punch it out. There's two rules, no face shot, nothing below the belt. And it was a a terrible way of dealing with conflict, but it did relieve a bit of the tension. But here's my my point. If families are going to stay together, they've got to work out a way to resolve conflict. And so this seems to be a bit of the background of what's going on in these, these verses we're looking at. It seems like as the Thessalonian church has come together, there's a few tensions that have risen up. And it might be because there's a bit of pressure on them from the outside that they're facing uh, persecution for the decision they've made. And it seems like that some in the church might be potentially walking away, that the church could be potentially fracturing. And so there's a bunch of commands here that are directed at the church. And I count 18 commands. They're quite short and to the point. But what I want to draw your attention to is that even though these commands seem a bit scattered, I think Paul's writing with a specific goal in mind. I think we see it clearly in verse 23. Have a look there, verse 23. It acts as a bit of a summarising statement to everything he's saying here. I'll read it. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so Paul, he paints a bit of a picture with this verse for us, and the image that we get is what Paul is hoping for, for the church in the day that Jesus returns. And the first thing we see in this picture is that the church is sanctified through and through. It's a church that's grown in holiness. And if you can't quite picture what that looks like, picture Jesus and his character. The goal of sanctification is to become more and more like Jesus. And so as the body, we're to become more in sync with the head, which is Christ. But there's a word here that makes us pause a little bit. And it's the word blameless. I don't know if you struggled with this a bit as you're reading it um, during the week. I'll read it again for you. It says, Your whole soul and body, uh, whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think all of us who are trusting in God's grace in the gospel, we hear this and we're, we're, we're well aware that we're not blameless and we never will be. And so. It's important to clarify what Paul might mean here. I don't think he's saying that we're to achieve a blamelessness in that final day, because it wouldn't be in line with what else he says in the Bible and what the Bible says. Uh, The Bible says that there's only one person that's truly blameless. That's Jesus. That's why Jesus, when he died on the cross, he could actually pay for the sins of others. He wasn't deserving of death at all, But he took it on to pay for others' sins. And so it's through the cross that that he takes our sin and we actually get his blamelessness. And so I've got a verse here. It's from 1 Peter 3.18. And this explains the transaction that goes on here. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And so it's Jesus' blamelessness that brings us to God. It's not our own. And so I think the emphasis here is on being kept blameless at the coming of Jesus. And so what he's saying is that the goal is that we're all still trusting in what Jesus has done for us right up to that final day, that we have a faith that remains and endures to that day, a faith that doesn't fizzle out or or give up. And so this is what Paul wants for us as he writes these things. It's that we, as God's family, make it to that day together. It's that we help each other get to the end. That in that day, we wouldn't lose anyone. That's what Paul's goal is for us here. And so with this in mind, Paul's attempting, with these instructions that we're about to go through here, to strengthen relationships in the church. That relationships are the connective tissue that hold the body together. And it's by these relationships that we're going to get to the end together. And so I think there's three relationships that he focuses on. The first one is the church's relationships with its leaders. Uh, the second one is the church's relationship with each other. And the third one is the church's relationship with God. And so we're going to see these. And so let's look at the first one. We start there in verse 12. And so have a look there. I'm going to read it. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And so, as Paul traveled around Europe and helped churches start, before he moved on, he would appoint people to be leaders in the church. And here we get a bit of an insight into what Paul saw as good leadership. And it's interesting that the passage doesn't actually use the word leader. It just describes the characteristics of good leadership. And what we see is that it's hardworking, it cares for people, and it admonishes people. And so that word means to warn people, to turn back. And so it's, it's a servant leadership. It's, a, it's the type of leadership that isn't interested in power, but genuinely seeks the good of another. And we see this perfectly displayed in Jesus, the king that came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so it seems like there's some tension towards leaders in the church. We can't know what for sure it is, so we don't, don't really know, but the instruction that we do have is for the congregation and how they are to treat their leaders. And Paul's command here. Is acknowledge if you've got an MIV it says acknowledge your leaders other translations might say respect and it's an interesting part of the Bible because as leaders preach on it it's almost like them telling the church to like them more uh, it's not the case we just work through the Bible and we'll just preach whatever comes up next and I think I can actually speak on behalf of leadership in this church and say that we really feel loved and acknowledged we don't we're not looking for anything more. <laughs> Um, but it's an interesting command here, acknowledge. And so how might you be someone that does that? I think there's a, an evenness in this command that helps us avoid extreme approaches. It's not saying that leaders deserve excessive special treatment. It's not saying that leaders deserve to be pampered with compliments. It's that They don't need to be put up on a pedestal. All those approaches would be extreme. Um, but the other extreme would be having no regard for them whatsoever. And I think that's actually probably more of a common approach in our Australian tall poppy syndrome culture. It's the, the mate, don't, don't get ahead of yourself. You're, just, you're one of us. And there's something really we really like about that culture. It's humble. Um, it's a good, good amount of humility. But I think what Paul is saying is to acknowledge is to be aware of their work and how it is done to care for you. And so as you acknowledge your leaders, consider these things. They've got you good in mind. They're not your enemy. So you should so either live in peace with them. Give them the benefit of the doubt in any decisions that they make. And know that God is, has entrusted them into their role as a leader and that they'll have to give an account to him of what they do. Um, notice their role as an under-shepherd to the good shepherd. Jesus is the ultimate authority. They're just under shepherds to him. And so respect them in that role that they take up amongst you. If you have an issue with them, uh, go directly to them and deal with it in a personal and private manner. Be careful of venting frustrations to others behind their back. Be someone that prays for your leaders and their work, that they would care for you well. And so if we're going to get to the end together... We need healthy relationships with those that God has entrusted to lead us. But it's not just leaders. It's also the church's relationships with each other amongst ourselves. So look at verse 14 there. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And so, as the Thessalonian church has formed, you've got a diverse group of people coming together with a diverse group of needs. And that's true of every church, isn't it? That's true of our church. Um, We come to church not because we're perfect and we have our lives sorted, but because we're broken people who are looking for Jesus. We want to follow him. And because we're broken and we're all different, there can be frictions and tensions that arise amongst ourselves. And so Paul instructs the church to seek the good of each other, to increase in love of each other. And so I compare what he's doing here as like putting fresh oil in an engine. And so I feel like everyone has that moment in their lives when they need someone to explain to them how oil works in a car I remember um, buying my first car and spending all my money on the car and not considering the upkeep or anything involved with it. And I remember thinking, ah, services, that's just just another way they get your money. And so I had no idea of the importance of oil in a car. And I think I I drove it for about two years, and that's about the time where your engine kind of just gives up if you don't put oil in it. Um, And I remember taking it to the mechanic and him coming out and giving me a serious word And he explained how oil works. And he said, your engine, it needs fresh oil regularly to lubricate all the pistons and valves to allow them to turn smoothly, to minimise friction, and to reduce the parts from wearing down. Really important. And so I reckon Paul is trying to do the same thing for us here. He's trying to minimise friction in the church. And what he says is, you need love. Like a regular oil change, there needs to be regular input coming in for the care of a church. We need to seek the good of each other. We need to comfort one another, be patient with one another. And so, like an engine that's cared for well, will just keep going for a long time. So the church that's full of love, and, and Peter, P, um, Peter he, he writes about this as well in his letter. Um, on the healing qualities of love. He says in 1 Peter 4 eight. it's going to come up on the screen, it says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And so if you've ever been sinned or wronged against someone in church, that the easiest approach might just be to leave or to walk away. And maybe that's something that you might have done in the past when someone's wronged you you just distance yourself from them but the bible's picture of church is a picture of reconciliation that love has the ability to bring us back together I, I don't know if you um follow any christian news services online or anything um but there was a last month there was a church over in america uh on a college campus a place called asbury did anyone hear about this yeah um They were having a church service and people just wanted to keep worshipping. And so it just kept going, 16 days straight, 400 hours, continually gathered and praising God. Um, It it was awesome. I watched a little video on it and a lot of people were calling this a revival, which is a bit of a title you want to be wary of. A lot of people get drawn into something called revivalism, where they try to find the next revival and catch lightning in a bottle. Um, But what was happening here was really beautiful. And it didn't seem manufactured to me. And I was watching this interview of this girl that was involved with it, and something she said really uh, caught my attention. I'll read it for you. She said, I know this campus very well, only about a 1,000 students, and I know exactly the ones that hate each other. But they are the ones that I've seen praying together, singing together, hugging, crying. Even myself... I've had a a list of my least favourite people at this school and I've spent the week with them and it's been life-changing. So revival or not, that's pretty incredible, hey? People that hate each other, (laughs) forgiving and being united in their worship of Jesus. That's the the Spirit's work right there. And so we need this love amongst us if we're going to make it to the end together. That's what's going to get us there still trusting in Jesus. But notice who Paul commands this to. Look at verse 14, just the start of it. He says, And we urge you, brothers and sisters. It's a word for all of us. It's not just for leaders. And so when we experience physical or or spiritual neediness amongst us, we can often say things like, Oh, you know what? The church should really be doing something like that. And who do we mean when we say that? Well, often we can mean the leaders in the church. They should be the ones that do it. But that's not the the case with these verses, that this is actually the responsibility for all of us. We're to admonish the idle. We're all to help the weak. We're all to encourage the faint-hearted. We're all to be key contributors. And so if you pick up something going on for a brother or sister maybe physical or spiritual needs, are you in a position to do something about it? Can you help them? How would you be able to care for them, encourage them? Would you be able to pray with them, maybe after the service? Maybe you've seen something in them that they need to be warned of. This isn't just the leader's responsibility. This is all of us to be doing. And so I want to give you guys some encouragement. I actually think we're really good at this. Uh, from my position, I get to hear and see all the things that are getting done for each other. And it's, it's awesome. It's beautiful. I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to keep going and doing more and more of this. It's so good. And so let's move on to the third relationship that needs strengthening. It's the church's relationship with God. And this one's a bit harder to piece together. And I think it breaks into two sections. You've got... Um, and, and the first one is our ongoing posture... Towards God's goodness to us, and so look there at verse sixteen. It says, "Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus." I don't know if you've ever been told to feel a certain way, but it can be pretty difficult. Be pretty difficult if you feel the opposite. Like if you're sad and someone just tells you be happy. It's actually quite discouraging. It just doesn't work like that. And so how can Paul instruct us to rejoice always here? Well, I think there's two things to consider. I think the first one is that I don't think Paul's being literal here. What the Bible says elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for joy, there's a time for mourning. Jesus himself, at the death of his friend Lazarus, he wept. I don't think he was rejoicing in that moment. And I think it's the same with the approach to prayer. Like, I don't think he's saying, don't stop praying ever. Like, we've got to sleep at some stage. And so I think what Paul is getting at is that we display a pattern of a posture of thankfulness towards God in our life. That we're to remind ourselves to have ongoing gratitude towards the Lord. That we come to him in a pattern of prayer continually. And it's this posture and pattern that's going to strengthen our relationship with the Lord. And this command, it'd be a bit odd if we didn't have a legitimate reason to be joyful either, which isn't the church's problem. We have a very good reason to rejoice. And so I don't know if you picked up on this, but um, I've noticed a bit of a, a gratitude movement in our society Uh, it's almost come a bit trendy, uh, that people are making a habit to express gratitude to something or someone. It's often Mother Earth or something out there in the universe. And part of this push is actually coming from mental health, that um, we feel better when we express gratitude. And there's a humility in it that's really attractive, and I think it does really good things. But the problem with it is that you can't really pinpoint who it is that is receiving the gratitude. But that's not our problem as the church. We have a very clear and obvious object of our gratefulness. It's the God that made us. And we know what he's done for us. We know that he sent his son to die for us, to to save us from our sins, to wash us clean, to give us a new life. As Christians, we have legitimate reason to rejoice. Even in times of mourning, We have a deep hope, even in that time. And so maybe you're with us today and you're still examining the claims of the Bible, what this might mean for your life. Do you feel like there's something or someone out there that deserves your gratitude? Or maybe you look around at the world in your life, do you feel like you owe it to someone? The fact that you're here (laughs) probably means that you do think that way. I don't think you'd be here otherwise. The Bible says that there is someone that deserves your gratitude, someone that will satisfy your ultimate desires. And the incredible news of the Bible is that he wants to know you. God made all this so that we might seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. God wants us to know him. He wants us to come to him and be at peace forever. This is the source of our joy. This is why we sing. We sing out of thankfulness for what our Savior's done for us. But you might be in a bit of a season where you're just finding it really hard to rejoice, feeling a bit spiritually dry. And so how might we be able to create a pattern in our life of a posture of thankfulness? Well, <laughs> Can I encourage you to use this upcoming draw near series season? If you just do one thing throughout the whole time, one thing, attempt to regularly express your gratitude towards Jesus. Do what you can to lift your heart and your eyes to see what Jesus has done for you, to see how God is good to you. But there's a second part to our relationship with God here that Paul wants us to strengthen, and it's our, pos- it's our posture towards his words as we gather together. And so look there at verse 19. It says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And so Paul is helping the church consider how to approach the ministry of prophecy. And so what is prophecy? Um, You might have a variety of ideas based of what you might have experienced in other churches or in the past. In the Old Testament, a prophet was someone sent by God to bring God's word to the people. It was as if God himself was speaking. But when we get to the New Testament, we don't see prophets come like they used to. Hebrews 1 actually says, in the past God used to speak through the prophets, but now he speaks through his son Jesus. Jesus. And so Jesus' words are the words of God, and we're to treat them as such. But Jesus also commissioned 12 apostles to continue the work of spreading his word. And we see that the apostles have a similar authority as the Old Testament prophets. They're a bit of a replacement of that. And so when they write instructions to the churches, we treat it as if Jesus himself is instructing, instructing the church. And so it's the prophets and the apostles and Jesus' words that make up the Bible that we have in front of us. And we consider them to have a unique authority as the word of God. And so what do we make of the prophecy that the Thessalonian church might be experiencing here? Well, it seems like the nature of this prophecy is different to the Old Testament prophets and the apostles. And I think you can piece it together based on the instructions Paul gives us. There's a few interesting things in there. The first is that Paul tells them not to despise prophecies, which would be a really odd change of tone if you can remember back when we looked at chapter 1, where Paul commends them for receiving the word with joy, his words as an apostle. It seems that the, the words that they're despising are different from Paul's words. He also says to hold fast to what is good. Which is interesting because if it was an authoritative word, you would assume that it's all good. But there's a certain, type, certain amount of discretion that needs to be applied with this kind of prophecy. And the third thing he says, to test it. And so our question is, test it against what? And so Paul was saying, test it against Jesus' words, the apostles, the, the prophets, to see if it holds up. And the fact that he tells them to test it gives the indication that Paul's not expecting this prophecy to bring about new revelation. Whatever's said should line up with what they've already got. There's no hidden or secret knowledge. We all have access to the word of God together. I don't have more access than you. We all have it. And so what do we make of the type of prophecy that's described here? Well, the first thing is it's it's different. It doesn't carry the same authority, authoritative word. Uh, it doesn't carry the authority of the word of God. Yet, it does exist, and to despise it would be to despise the Spirit's work. Um, 1 Corinthians 14.3, it describes the purpose of prophecy, and it, it's, uh, it's up there on the screen. It says, The one who prophesies speaks to people, for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. And so that's what it's for. And so the way that we see the gift of prophecy in the New Testament church would best be described as someone that brings a word from God that spontaneously comes to mind, often in a timely moment of relevancy, for the strengthening, encouragement, and comfort of the church. And so I think this actually happens more often than we realise amongst us. We want to be careful not to overemphasise what we're expecting when we read about this. And so, have you ever experienced something like this? Maybe a, a brother or a sister comes to you and it encourages you by sharing something that's been revealed to them in the Bible. God might have put it on their heart to do that. They don't know your situation, but their words are timely and relevant. It's as if God is using their words to comfort you in a moment of crisis. Their words are prophetically speaking to your situation. I think I've had this happen to myself many a time. I think I've experienced as well through preaching and singing. I've been listening to a sermon or singing a song, and I feel like whatever truth is being brought out by the the song leader or the preacher is speaking directly to my situation in a deeply profound way that only God could know. And so I think these examples of prophecy are consistent throughout the New Testament letters. It's not wild, wacky, or extravagant. It's inspired by what we have in the Bible. It comes at timely moments, and it strengthens, comforts, and encourages And so as we think about how to embrace prophecy amongst us, there's a bit of a tension that we need to think through. It's the tension of being open to the Spirit's work through prophecy while also testing testing it against what we have in the Bible. And so we shouldn't be just totally open to allowing anyone who thinks they have a prophetic message to speak. That kind of openness actually leads to crazy types of prophecy. I reckon it's the type of openness that's actually led the Thessalonians to despise prophecy here. And so how how might we be people that are open to God's spirit at work in us? Well, I think the clearest path, the easiest thing for us to do is to open ourselves up to the words of God in the Bible. 1 Timothy 3.16, it's gonna come up on the screen. It says, all scripture... Is God breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, the the Bible's claim is that what we have in front of us is God breathed. It's His, it's Him speaking, and we're to treat it as Him speaking directly to us by His Spirit. This is what prophecy is. Tested against, it's superior to prophecy, and so because we have the Word already, we're sufficiently sustained with what we need. We we don't need to wait for prophetic words to come. God might use um, use someone prophetically to bring encouragement or strengthening in your life, but don't anticipate that it's going to come in miraculous ways. The best way that we can be open to the Spirit is by being open to his word. And so can you see how this is going to help us get to the end together? As we open ourselves up to the spirit at work in his word, we can anticipate that God would be using it to equip us for every good work, the works of loving and caring for each other. We need to strengthen our relationship with God's word. It's part of what's going to get us to the end together. And so let's let the word dwell richly amongst us. Let's teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Let's rejoice with gratitude in our hearts. This is to be our relationship with the Lord. This is how we're to posture ourselves towards Him. So I'm going to finish up here but I want to finish by challenging I I want to finish by challenging by asking what's it going to take for you to embrace healthy relationships amongst this church? How might you be able to love and care for your brothers and sisters here in a way that's on display in these passages? We've got to be committed to Jesus, but we're also committed to his family. And so what can you do to help us Make it to the end, still trusting in Him. Here's some encouragement for you. Look at verse 24. It says, The one who calls you is faithful, and He will do it. God is faithful even when we're not. He's doing a work to bring us to that day, and He's using the church, He's using us to hold on to everyone. And so let's pray that God would be doing this work amongst us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and its guidance to us. Uh, We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the family that you've gathered us to and the brothers and sisters that you've won for us. Lord, would you give us a heart that can see and, and care for those around us? Would you prompt us in ways to, to, to take action, to love each other well, to cover multitudes of sin through love? And would you ca- increase that amongst us? Lord, would you lift our eyes and our hearts to rejoice? Would you help us see the goodness of the gospel? Would you re- remind us of us daily? Would you help us to see the depths of what you've accomplished for us in Jesus. Help us to be open to you. Help us to be people that listen to you. And we thank you for the church. We thank you that you've given us each other to help us get to that day. We pray for that day. We pray that we would all in this room reach it, still trusting in you. Lord, help us to trust in you, the faithful God. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.